Good. Um, welcome to week five in the Oxford Transitional Justice Research and Centre for Socio-Legal Studies series. It's very good to see everybody out this evening. Um, it's a real pleasure to have with us uh, today Nassim Baday, who I know is very well known to, to many of you. Um, she's a DPhil candidate in politics um, here in Oxford. Um, she's also a visiting scholar at the Centre for African Studies at Berkeley. So we've caught her on a, a, on a brief trip back to Oxford. Um, Nassim's going to speak to us this evening on, on a topic that she certainly knows a great deal about um, because she's done a, a great deal of fieldwork um, in southern Sudan, uh, particularly between 2006 and 2008. Um, she's writing her, her doctorate on issues of land and reconstruction and, and state building in, in southern Sudan. Um, Nassim's been here for, for quite a while in Oxford, uh, having done an, an MPhil um, in uh, development studies. Um, she's also got a BA in comparative politics from Berkeley, and I didn't know this until I checked up on your bio that you also have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in painting um, from the San Francisco Art Institute. So so it's very nice when you sort of have known someone for a while, but you continue to find out things um, about them. So Nassim this evening is going to speak to us on the topic of negotiating the post-conflict state land disputes in Juba, southern Sudan. Thanks very much, Nassim. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, if you, will you come over and grab one of these chairs? I can take this stuff on. Okay. Okay, so um, I can you, can you bring the keyboard down? It's okay. I don't know for you. Can you <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't mean that to say. He was that, you know, IT expert. research looks at the local politics of reconstruction in Juba, which is the capital of the new semi-autonomous territory of southern Sudan. <clears throat> and unfortunately, there isn't enough time to go over the history of Sudan, which is very complex, or the, you know, sort of no north-south politics. But um, what my broader thesis project tries to do is to critique the sort of international relations paradigm of reconstruction by looking at how it actually unfolds on the ground. <clears throat> and how the politics of reconstruction really play a large role in shaping what it becomes and what the state becomes, and how this is often a very conflictual process and a process that brings together really different images of what the state should be, different ideas of citizenship, and also, if I'm going to try to relate this m more to you know the topic of these seminars, transitional justice, is that in these dialogues, um, we get a real idea of... Um, different competing notions of um, suffering, justice, reconciliation, and compensation. And um, my personal view about transitional justice is that it's 
so far been viewed in very narrow legal terms or institutional terms or processes. And actually, um, justice, whether we international actors or institutions participate in it or not, is something that is negotiated on the ground um, throughout processes of reconstruction and throughout processes of state building. So hopefully today I can get through all the history and stuff, um, and maybe a touch of theory, my tentative theory, and get to the actual um, uh, quotes from the disputants in the two land disputes that I'm going to be talking about, and, and we can discuss maybe afterwards um, how what they say relates to um, these issues of justice and reconciliation and compensation. Okay, so this is a map of Sudan. It's the largest country in Africa. In 2005, there was a peace agreement between um, the government of Sudan and the Sudan People's Liberation Army. Now, it's often mischaracterized as a north-south civil war, but actually, um, many southern militias were allied with the north against the SPLM during the war, so there was a lot of intra-south conflict. Um, and also, um, northern opposition party members were allied with the SPLM um, in their struggle for much of the war. So it's a mischaracterization, and it obscures a lot of what's happening on the ground now um, and how challenging the state-building process is. I don't know if you can see, but this is about the border of southern Sudan. So this is how the new territory was conceived. It's based on colonial boundaries. These were the three colonial provinces. I'm sorry, I don't know why I only found a map in Arabic. Okay, and just quickly, this is a sort of a very rough and kind of inaccurate ethnic breakdown of southern Sudan. And it also gives you a sense of, you know, for a region that hasn't really been consolidated into the Sudanese state and into itself, um, there's a lot of ethnic diversity. So, something to keep in mind. Okay, now the peace agreement gave the southern territory um, um, autonomy, a degree of autonomy, allowed it to set up its own government with the SPLM as the ruling party, and it um, separated it into ten states. And this is really important because the southern Sudanese state was conceived of as a decentralized state, which is sort of this, you know, which has been a trend um, in development discourse. And the state that we're going to be talking about today is Central Equatoria State, and this is Juba. It's about a hundred kilometers from the border of Uganda, and Juba is really important. Um, and mostly I'll be talking about the distinctiveness of Juba, because Juba was um, the, the capital of the former um, southern regional government after the 1972 Addis Ababa Agreement, which ended the first civil war in, in Sudan. Um, there was a southern government. It was set up in a slightly different way, and the peace agreement had slightly different terms. But the government essentially disintegrated because of ethnic rivalry between the Dinka, which is the majority ethnic group in southern Sudan, and um, local Equatorian elites, who um, the Equatorians are comprised of, I mean, if we go back up, you can see that you know this area, this is Western Equatoria, Central Equatoria, and Eastern Equatoria. It's made up of a bunch of small tribes. Many of them speak the Bari language. Um, and then you know the, the regions up here are mainly Nwer and Dinka. <clears throat> so there, were ethnic, there was ethnic rivalry that the Khartoum government sort of played off, and eventually it ended in um, a redivision of the southern region, which had been taken as one unified region under the Addis Ababa Agreement, into three separate regions. And what that meant was that each region had to deal separately with its governor, with the north, weakening the entire south. And it immediately led to the Second Civil War. 
Juve was also distinctive because it's extremely strategic. It had one of the few airports um, in southern Sudan, and I think the only one that could land a, um, a an air, like a jet liner, because it had a paved runway. Um, and it had, you know, a river port, it had uh, roads into Uganda and Kenya, and it was extremely strategic. So during the war, it was a Sudan Armed Forces garrison, and it was isolated and surrounded by rebel territory, by SBLA-held territory. So what this meant was that the local population, who are majority majority of them are from the Bari ethnic group, were, um, for whatever reason, whether they were coerced or whether they did it willingly, were aligned with the National Congress Party and the Sudan Armed Forces that were occupying the town. Some of them joined the Sudan Armed Forces. Many of them became political leaders in the local state. <clears throat> of course, there was also a resistance movement. I don't have time to go into that, but we can talk about it afterwards. And so a lot of the local um, elites were involved in that and were trying to help the SBLA. But life in the town was extremely hard. There was economic suffocation. There were no goods coming in and out. Um, the borders were closed and mined. <clears throat> um, um, what is the... Um, I guess that's the main thing that I want to say about Juba. Okay. So then we get to 2005. I think I even have a picture of Juba on the next slide. Yeah, okay. So here's a picture of Juba in 2008. Now, um, in 2005, um, when the CPA was, um, you know, signed, the decision was made to make Juba the capital again. And um, it was, you know, for all of the reasons that I mentioned, you know, it was a strategic place. Um, the donors put a lot of pressure on the SBLA because it's very, the other towns that were being considered didn't have any buildings or any infrastructure, and it would have been really, you know, they didn't have enough access to water, etc. And also, they didn't have this educated population um, that could populate a civil service. <clears throat> but there were real reasons why the SBLM was kind of ambivalent about choosing Juba. One of them was this ethnic rivalry, <clears throat> and... Um, Yeah, okay, so I'll stop there, and we can go back to, you know, the details of history. It's, it's very complicated history, but I first went to Juba in 2006, and the first time I was there, I was probably the only researcher. There was a very small aid community. There were no cars to be seen. People had just, you know, for the first time been able to buy plastic chairs in the market, so um, then when I went back in 2008, the town had totally changed. And in that interim period, um, there were a lot of problems with reconstruction in Juba. And the problems mainly had to do with land. Now, um, <clears throat> um, following the CPA, the SBLM began um, activities in refugee camps and bordering states to try to repatriate as many as of the Sudanese refugees that were outside. I think there was upwards of 600,000 refugees um, in neighboring states. And they tried to get all of those refugees to come back as soon as possible, as well as IDPs from Khartoum, which I think numbered about 2 million, in order to be counted for the census. And I don't know if you guys know, but there's a census um, that was um, completed in 2008. It was very um, questionable, um, the numbers that resulted, but that would be the basis for elections. And I don't know if I've said yet, but in 2011, there's going to be a referendum on independence for the South. So this really is a state-building process, not just, you know, building a regional government. 
So when I first was in Juba in 2006, there were um, the estimates from NGOs that were working in the town was that there was about um, 250,000, anywhere between 250,000 and 500,000 people living in the town. And by 2008, this had doubled. And it wasn't just um, IDPs and refugees coming back. It was diaspora members, ex-combatants, officials working for GOSS, and a huge aid community coming in. And there wasn't enough land for all of these people, and there wasn't any building. And one of the problems was that there was no reconstruction being done. There was no housing development. There wasn't a lot of works. There were no roads being built. And you know, understanding why this wasn't happening um, was one of my goals. So. Um, while I examine this in, in the broader thesis from a variety of different angles, today I'm just going to talk about um, two land disputes. Um, and I think, how are we doing for time? Oh, I'm going too fast. Okay, so <laughs> um, I think I first will give a little bit of background about the land disputes, and then I'll um, present two land disputes. So I think. Okay, here we go. This is Juba. I'll leave that there. That's an aerial view of Juba. Now, just to give you a bit of context, the, the borders, the boundaries of the town during the war would have been something like that. But then, of course, the town starts to expand as all these um, settlements start to come up. So in 2008, basically, any part of the town that had any open land was, um, had sort of squatter settlements on it. And people started just building these um, huts called tukuls. Um, they would build with tin, they would build anywhere, because when they first came back, they would stay with family and friends, and then when there was no access to housing, and the government didn't actually make um, arrangements <clears throat> for the returnees. So there was just a lot of squatting, and this led to some political disputes with the um, locals. Now, um, there were many, many cases of land disputes, um, of all sorts. And usually um, the context of this um, that you know in the, the way that I want to sort of examine land disputes so if I can just back up a bit and talk about theory is that usually when we talk about land disputes um, we focus on you know the economic strategies of you know urban poor and their um, you know w ways of trying to improve their livelihoods um, or we think about you know um, sort of structuralist analyses where we think about the relationship between informality and the state you know we have these dichotomies of legal non-legal formal informal um, but my whole agenda here is to talk is to think about land disputes and land claims and informality um, as more of a political strategy as as a strategy that um, more broadly plays into this period, this special period of reconstruction when the state is being renegotiated and individuals have an opportunity to sort of make a claim on the state and with real implications um, going forward. So <clears throat> now when all these returnees come back to southern Sudan, they immediately go to Juba, most of them, and this is you know, a very um, standard trend that happens everywhere. Returnees have been living in refugee camps. Um, they've a lot of times lost contact with their villages of origin. Um, they don't have the skills for farming anymore. And there's these social networks that are really important to finding jobs and, you know, just getting back on your feet in, in capitals. Um, they want to be near economic opportunities. Most of the aid money is going into Juba. So there's a lot of reasons why this happened and should have been anticipated. Um, but the local government immediately, uh, and one thing that I should say too is that 
the central Equatoria state government that was headquartered in Juba. Juba is also the capital of various levels of government under this decentralized framework. And um, the central Equatoria state government is for the most part populated by the same civil servants and leaders that it had been during the war. And this was the SBLM's attempt at reconciliation, this idea that, you know, everybody stays where they are, no one's losing their job, we're going to work together, we're all Southerners. But of course, these, a lot of these men and women are former NCP members. They, uh, some of them fought against the SBLM in, in the war. And they have a real sort of cautious approach to the new Southern Sudanese state. You know, they're very worried about their position in it going forward. So how they interpret the Comprehensive Peace Agreement and how the very the local Bari who think of Juba as their ancestral homeland interpret this, the peace agreement is entirely different from how it's interpreted by others. The local Bari think, and the, the CPA, one of the things that the CPA does, one of the things that the SPLM negotiated was to get community rights to land, ethnic rights to land for Southerners. So the Bari interpret this to mean that all the land in Juba is theirs and it should be allocated through their traditional courts. Also, the CPA gave land management rights to the states, so that means that the state has the right to um, organize the land management process, not to own the land, but to organize the process. But at the same time, the CPA gave the responsibility of urban planning to various levels of government, and all the reconstruction funding goes through the government of southern Sudan. So there's a lot of conflict here between who's responsible for what, who's building the state, and who's, who's reconstructing the town. But the politics of this is that the central Equatoria state government um, wants to keep Juba, wants to keep Juba having an Equatorian identity. Um, they want to keep the status that they have. They want to keep land management, you know, under under them. Um, and they ally with the Bari, and they, this is a very complex relationship because the Bari are not necessarily the same as the Equatorian elite that run the government. In fact, there's a conflict between the Bari and the Mundari, and the Mundari um, hold the governorship right now. But um, they, you know, they, they form an alliance anyway as Equatorians against the SBLM, and they block the SBLM out of land entirely. So if you can imagine, the government of southern Sudan has no access to land in the capital with which to reconstruct and build housing. And the local state, the central Equatorial state government, wants no refugees or IDPs to be settled in Juba at all. They want all people to go back to their places of origin. So this becomes a real problem. And um, this is the context for which I'm going to talk about these two disputes. And um, there were several, and I did several case studies as I was walking around the neighborhoods and kind of getting to know people. But I think these two are, are really interesting for a short talk because um, they have four categories of people that I think are very different and interesting to think about. The first dispute, Tongping, is between ex-combatants and the Bari community, sort of the, the Bari community allied with the central Equatorial state government. And the second dispute is between this community of nuns and uh, an IDP settlement. <clears throat> so the first um, dispute is, and please, if anyone has any questions, stop me or if I'm talking too fast. Yeah? Okay. All right. <laughs> so... Um, <clears throat> this yellow mark right there is Juba Airport. That's the runway. This is like a Google um, Google Maps aerial um, image. And Tongping is just near the airport. <clears throat> um, it's a large area of Class One lots, and the the class 
um, system um, is based on the colonial town planning system. Um, so it's basically meant for larger, you know, homes and larger plots. Um, it's hard, you know, the, the, the history is contested, but in the 1960s, <clears throat> the government resettled a community of Dinka from Bor, which is about, you know, I think 100 miles north of Juba, um, um, in that area because there were floods in Bor, and many people died and the population had to relocate and they resettled a community of Bordinka, a very small community of Bordinka, Bordinka who traveled with their, they were pastoralists so they couldn't really fit into the town with their cows so they settled them there. Then after the outbreak of the Civil War, after the Addis Ababa Agreement, that area grew a little bit, some Nuer joined in and some other people and then after the outbreak of the Civil War, um, most Dinka and non-Bari and non-Equatorians left joined the SBLM and went to the bush. And so this community, for the most part, left. Um, during the war years, during the two decades of war, the land was surveyed, um, plots were demarcated, and they were leased out to individuals. Most of them were aligned with uh, the government, the local state at the time. In 2007, we start to see um, big houses coming up in Tongping. Now, if you can imagine, before there were no homes there. And then you see these huge, really beautiful homes coming up. And um, there, there starts to be calls of land grabbing. And most of the people who are building homes are somehow related to the SBLM. And a lot of them are ex-combatants. So who were the people grabbing land in Tongping? And what was their motivation? <clears throat> so in my conversations with some of the GOSS officials and ex-SBLA um, officers, you know, I, got a, I, got, I think I got a good picture of what underlaid their, you know, motivations to acquire this land. I talked to one um, ex-combatant, his name is James. He's a Nwer from Nasser, and he joined the SBLA when he was 11 years old. And after fighting for eight years, he left as a refugee to the United States. He had a family there, he got his master's degree, and then after the CPA, he thought, I'm going to go back and help rebuild my government. So he comes back to Juba, and he can't find a place to live. And he finally gets a job in the government as a controller, as a, you know, working in accounting. Um, and they put him in this, like, um, they put him in employee housing, and, you know, the only way that, that the government was dealing with many people was this way. Um, you know, there's just putting them, uh, the higher level bureaucrats were intent in these safari camps, but, uh, it, so he says, when I came back to Juba, I was with 12 people living in the same place with one bathroom. It was an unbelievable life, at least to me. There was no place really for me to go and stay, because I stayed outside for more than 15 years. I didn't know anybody. Then when I found a job, I have to make sure that my small earnings should be put in good use, and the good use is the land. I have to have a place. So then I came to learn about Tong Ping. So how did he acquire his land? In 2008, um, one of the friends he had, who was also working in the government, introduced him to someone who identified as a Dinka chief of Tong Ping. Um, he gave the man um, about a thousand Sudanese pounds, about a five hundred dollars, and he was demarcated a plot and he built on it with his earnings. Um, so he argued that the rightful inhabitants of Tongping had been forced off that land um, when the Civil War started. And it was the events that prompted the, the war um, that caused all these people to lose their plots. And he believed that they should regain the land they had originally inhabited. And he somehow identified as one of these people and felt that, you know, if they gave him the right to stay there, then he had the right to stay there. 
And in this process, he's trying to carve out for himself the privileged position as an ex-combatant, as someone who fought for, for the you know, liberation of southern Sudan. And he says, in 1981, um, redivision broke out, but some Dinkas still lived there in Tongping. Then in 1983, the war broke out, and everybody left. Anybody who thought there was a cause left. They went out of Juba, and when they went for the bush, then the people who claim Tongping today under the government of Sudan, which is the north, which consists of Sudan Armed Forces officers, went and allotted the land to themselves. James' interpretation of the CPA was that the statement, land belongs to the community, was not a strictly ethnic entitlement. He maintained land did not belong only to the sons of the soil, but to those who were willing to fight and die for it. He says, right now after, after peace comes, they say land, it belongs to the community, which confuses the Equatorians. When they say that land belongs to the community, it doesn't mean that this land, Juba, it belongs to Equatorians. No, it means that it belongs to Southerners. Land belongs to the community means all the Southerners are owners of the land. Any Equatorian is free to go and work in Bar al-Ghazal and live in Bar al-Ghazal. Somebody from Bentiu has a right to come and lease here in Juba. As long as you are a Southerner, you have a part of the lion's share. It really symbolizes the new nation of Southern Sudan. Even though I'm a Nuer, I'm part of the Bari community as long as I live here. For example, take the oil of Western Upper Nile. Every state is benefiting. It comes out of the soil of Bentiu. The people of Bentiu could just say, we don't want anything to do with the people of Juba. Our oil is ours. If you look at this area here across the river, this area called Gumbo, the northern government has killed so many Dinka and so many Nuer in this area. Can these Dinka and Nuer come all the way there and die there if they are not part of the community? Could they really come to die here for nothing? You die for the land? They don't want you to have any, they don't want you to harvest any fruit of it? Now, the other side of this dispute, you know, um, is the Bari elites and the Equatorian elites and the, and the Central, Central Equatoria government. So they obviously don't privilege the position of those who'd fought with the SBLA because many of them didn't. They believe that irrespective of the fact that the land had once been occupied by Bordinka, the fact that it was demarcated by the Equatorial Province government, uh, which they had been a part of, meant that the tenure of whomever the government had subsequently chosen to allocate plots should predominate. The chairman of the Central Equatorial State Assembly um, explained. The story is, there was people displaced from war in 1967. And in 1983, the war broke out, so most of them went out. Later on, the land was gazetted as a government area. Now when most people come back, they say, this is our land. How is it that it had been gazetted? So they come, they just go and say, okay, this is my place. And somebody says, no, this land has been given to me as a plot. Yes, most of them might have been displaced, but all the same, the underlying thing is that since this is gazetted, it belongs to the government then no one has the right to say this is my land because once the land has been gazetted, you have to apply to the government so that you are given as a plot. And the Director General of Lands in the CES government um, shares the view. He says, although they lay claims now, I know the background to it, the history, and I'm sure they are not going to be given allotment. They don't have any claim at all on any land here in Juba. The Bari Community Association has an even stronger view. They think the entire history of Tongping is contested. And while they concede that the Bordinka were settled there in, in, 1960, in the 1960s, they argue that the resettlement was on a site of a village called Porda, which belonged to the Jubanabari chieftaincy. 
and which was meant to revert back to this chieftaincy um, uh, when the displaced people could return to their home. <clears throat> he states, the area was not demarcated. The area was just a village for the Bari, but they were given a piece of it temporarily to stay. There is no title deeds for them, completely nothing. He also points out that now the people who are claiming the land, if you go down there, you will get Nuer. By then, there were not Nuer there. There were not Dinka from Bar el Ghazal. So before I sort of try to analyze some of these claims and, and draw from them um, arguments about um, different experiences of the war and compensation <clears throat> and acknowledgement of, of what people had sacrificed, I'll talk about the second. Um, I'll talk about the second dispute. Okay, so the second dispute is in an area called Gudele. This is a classic squatter settlement. It's just outside the border of the town, and as you can see, it's, um, this whole area on the right would have been totally empty in 2006. There was nothing there. And when I returned, it's covered in these new building structures. Um, the story of Gudele is that in 1994, the Sisters of the Sacred Heart, a local congregation, bought a large plot of land. It's about 500 by 400 meters. <clears throat> their intention was to build facilities there for their small community. They're like eight nuns. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, they bought this land on the periphery of the town, but they really never were going to be able to build there because it was mined and it was outside the sort of SAF, you know, area, military area. But in any case, they have a lease for this plot of land. In 2006, right around the time when all of the returnees are coming back, they start noticing that there's houses, you know, houses like structures going up in that area. So they go down there, talk to the people, try to get them to leave. And the people sort of bully the nuns and say, get out of here, you know, this is our house now. So the sisters start a process for um, um, moving the IDPs and the settlement off. Um, and they ally with the local government to do so. Mm. The Juba County Commissioner's Office puts together an ad hoc demolition committee and all of a sudden they're about a week away from being demolished and I hear about it from one of the IRC representatives, the International Rescue Committee. So there's some NGOs involved here trying to get, you know, it's a thousand families in the settlement and these are people who have been living in refugee camps in, you know, Uganda and Kenya and have been coming back and they really have put all, all everything that they own into building, you know, buying a tin roof and building a home. But, you know, as much as everybody is trying to help them, there's not that, there's not that much can, that can be done because the local government and the local state really control the process of land allocation, and they are adamant that no um, non-locals should settle in land that has been allocated to other people. So first I'm going to give the sister's point of view, and then I'll, I'll give the IDP's point of view. Um, so in August, I interviewed one of the sisters in their main residence, which is in the center of town. She said... They just started coming. They just came and demarcated. One takes an area from there to there, the other one from there to there. I said to these people, stop building. If you are making a temporary shelter because you are looking for another place, okay. But this is a proper structure. This land, we bought it for development, and it is also for your benefit. But they would not listen. We were following the legal procedures. They don't have documents. We have a lease for 40 years. She continued to invoke the contribution of, of the sisters and the congregation to the local community during the war. During the war, we could have evacuated and gone to Uganda, or gone to stay with our sisters in Khartoum. But we said, no, we cannot go. We are for the people. We have to suffer for them, with them. 
We knew we could not support them really materially, but our presence was moral support for them, we thought. So we stayed with them until things stabilized. In fact, those who are treating us like that, these are people who did not stay with us here. Some were in Uganda, some were in Khartoum. When we were suffering here, they were not around. They don't know what happened here. On the other side of this, now, you know, this is sort of promoting or, or putting a claim and saying that, you know, it was really difficult in this town, and it was really difficult in the town. There was famine, there was a lot of suffering, there were disappearances, the national security had everyone under their thumb, there was a curfew. If you were out after the curfew, you could be beaten or killed. Um, in 1992, when the SBLA tried to take the town, many people were killed, executed, because of being suspected to help the SBLA. So, um, and the, the Catholic Church in Juba really saw itself as, you know, having a status in the town and having a role as being a protector of the community. And the sisters, understandably, wanted to maintain that, that position. But the community of residents, you know, they were a really um, adamant bunch, and they had um, very strong female leaders making their case. <clears throat> One of the women I spoke to, um, I'll call her Sarah, is a young woman in her 30s. She, she lived in the settlement with her husband and her younger siblings. So she had been a refugee in Uganda and Kenya, and in 2006, they returned to southern Sudan. They lived in Ye for a while, and they came to Juba. They stayed with friends and relatives, and then she heard they were giving away plots in Gudele, and she went, and she found her way to the block chief, and um, she recorded her name and got herself a tiny little plot, and they built a tukul. So she s explains um, that the, the settlement was out of necessity, not greed. After coming back, of course, there's no place for us to reside in Juba. And in the rural areas, most of the parts in the villages were mined. So they came back to Juba, they found a place, everybody gets a piece of land, arranges something, and then they start building. It's now over 1,000 households in Gudele Block 9. Jane, another resident, another leader of the community, um, um, expressed the impossible position that many re returnees found themselves in. She she was adamant that the com committee discussed it and they decided they wouldn't leave under any circumstances. We discussed we're not going to leave the area because we have no place to go. If you go all over Juba, you cannot even find houses for rent. And the people used all their money for building in Block 9. If you want to rent a house, they charge you six months rent in advance. And where will you get that money? The ultimate goal of the informal settlers was to be formalized, obviously, to be given some kind of lease documents for their area. In making their case, the women pointed to the fact that the land had never been occupied by the sisters. And they told of the improvements they'd made to the land, including building structures and digging boreholes. <clears throat> they referred to themselves as the community and as the citizens. And they argued that their contribution and expense was justification for requesting leases for the land. Jane argued, the area should be demarcated for the citizens because the community and the citizen, they have already wasted a lot of money. Some of them have built concrete houses. She also made appeals based on the vulnerability of the returnees, arguing that they couldn't recover their costs um, and that they would have nowhere to go if they, had, if they were demolished. <clears throat> they acknowledged that they had access to land in their areas of origin, but that those were not you know, viable places for them to go. Um, Jane argues, most of the people, they can't go to their villages. Like me for Lanya, if I have to go back to Lanya and I work in Juba, how do they expect me to come from Lanya and work in Juba? Because in Lanya, I definitely have a place. If I go, I will build my house and stay. 
but now I work in Juba. That is the reason why I should be here in Juba. And then Sarah makes the strongest sort of claim um, in, in sort of presenting the issue of residency as one of human rights. She says, like any other person, you are working in Ye. You get money and you go to stay there because that is where the government has decided that you serve your country, in that part of the land. <clears throat> she emphasized the service to the country and referred to the government of southern Sudan as the government and as having jurisdiction over all southern Sudanese citizens, so bypassing the local state. Um, and then expressing similar frustration, um, another resident argued that the response of the central equatory state government officials um, indicated a duality of rights, one for locals and another for outsiders. In arguing this, she emphasized the status of claimants as citizens. So she says, the message we got is that you come and stay in somebody's place and you do not have rights. I was living in Uganda as a refugee, but at home I do not expect my people to treat me the same way because this is where I have rights. This is where I feel at home. This is where I feel I am a citizen of this place. If I am a citizen of this land, I should be respected more. That is the thing that is frustrating. Now, okay, let's see. Yeah, yeah. Are the nuns also outsiders? Are they like missionaries from foreign? No, they're locals. And they're not necessarily from Juba, but they're Sudanese. Okay. So they could be from other parts of of, um, of Sudan. So, okay, now I'm going to wrap up in like two minutes and just give you my quick analysis and we can discuss. So obviously I've, I've read a lot of quotes and that can be hard to listen to, but I think it's really important to see how the subtle differences in how people are making their claims. And I draw more broadly this into sort of my analysis of state building, which is something that I think is this word that has no meaning. You know, it's like, what is state building? Like it's something in a UN document. But actually, I think if you look on the ground, it's extremely complex. It happens continuously, and it's negotiated. You know, something that is fought over through a, a, a process of reconstruction. So, okay. So, in these two land disputes, I discern um, four distinct discourses of claim making, um, and you know, with subsequent um, you know implications for state building. The first is our claims rooted. Um, in membership in an ethnic community, then that's obviously the local community, and by extension, their central equatorial state representatives. The second is, is a claim based on a legal bureaucratic record, and, you know, sanctioned by a state regime, and that is the claim of the sisters. Obviously, their agenda is to have continuity um, and protect their rights that way and their citizenship. Um, the third is a claim based on access to land as a universal um, human right, and that's the claim of IDPs and refugees. And the final is, you know, a claim that views land as compensation for contributions to the war. For the Bari and other local elites, the increase of informal settlements jeopardizes the ethnic identity of the town, and with it, the privileged economic and political status that had protected the community during the war. For the sisters, um, they rep their agenda sort of represents that of the non-Bari local elites um, who don't have an ethnic claim to the land but who, retain the, who want to retain the property they acquired under the previous government. And for many of them, you know, they are non-Bari Jubans who've lived in the town for their entire lives and now they find themselves in the position where they don't have access to this ethnic claim and they aren't you know, necessarily favored by the new state regime and so they really struggle to sort of carve out for themselves a place in this town.
The claims of ex-combatants and returning IDPs and refugees are based on a broader conceptualization of Southern Sudanese um, community, one in which community essentially equals citizen. <clears throat> and undereducated and underskilled, ex-combatants, their fate lays in a delicate balance as competition for jobs in the government and civil service increases. Claiming land and setting up permanent residence in Juba um, is a source of livelihood to pr protect against uncertainty in the future. Now, while the ex-combatants articulate their claims to land in terms of compensation and, and sacrifice and contributions to the war, the inhabitants of Gudele, the, the returnees, make claims based on access to housing as a human right. Um, and a lot of this is the discourse of the NGOs that they come into contact with. Um, and they believe that this is guaranteed by their citizenship in southern Sudan. For these groups, access to land, even through informal means, establishes their status as legitimate residents of Juba and by extension reaffirms their identity as southern Sudanese citizens, which decades of living outside of the region has diluted or put in question. So my main argument has been that these competing claims, which essentially center on questions of um, membership within a rights-bearing community, demonstrate both an attempt on the part of citizens to shape the state um, and to define their roles in relation to the state, and also on the part of elites aligned with the local state to delimit citizenship. So, um, to conclude, um, while the literature on land disputes typically, in southern Sudan in particular, tends to demonize ex-combatants who grab land and victimize IDPs and refugees and other landless poor who resort to squatting, um, the view that I've tried to present, um, you know, this sort of s strategy of, um, you know, um, you know, the strategic political action. So I I've basically argued that, um, you know, IDPs are political agents. You know, they're not just victims, and um, ex-combatants also have a plight. Um, they're they're also vulnerable. So in this sense, um, I'm trying to, you know, uncover what, why, what some of the motivations are, and, and you find surprising things that sort of break this very stereotypical view of, of you know, the bad uh, soldiers and the very, very innocent um, IDPs. And maybe, you know, um, this is, you know, something, the, these understandings underlie both reconciliation and justice and, you know, understanding conflict. So... I've attempted to show that the significance of the actions of squatters are not limited to their economic needs. The practice of land grabbing by ex-combatants is not simply an exercise of greed and power. At the same time, the actions of the nuns um, is not simply a matter of protecting what they perceive to be their legitimate property investment, nor is it only a lack of charity. The Bari community's resistance to the various informal settlements in Juba um, is not simply about preventing unlawful acquisition of their lands or a matter of ethnic chauvinism. What I've tried to do is place all these groups and their motivations within a context of rapid political change, um, which presented an opportunity for each of these groups to negotiate their position, not only as residents of the town, but as citizens of southern Sudan. So I'm going to stop there and um, close um, with just one sentence and say that, you know, in my broader project, which is to sort of um, draw inherent, to draw attention to the inherent negotiability of the state-building process, and sort of to challenge that prevailing paradigm of reconstruction as this top-down and teleological process of policy implementation, 
that perhaps there's a lesson there as well about transitional justice. And if there were to be one day a process, you know, um, a justice and accountability process in southern Sudan, you know, what I wonder maybe we could discuss what some of this data tells us about what a process like that may look like and how it may be implemented and some of the challenges that it might see on the local level in places like Juba. So thank you. Great. Thanks to say.